0: Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to the podcast at Fremont First United Methodist Church. My name is Bill. This is Jill, and uh, she is the Director of Discipleship. I'm the the lead pastor here at the church. Today we're going to talk about uh, the political debate that happened uh, on Tuesday night, this past Tuesday as we're recording this, uh, Tuesday at the end of September 2020 between uh, President Donald J. Trump and former vice president, current presidential candidate nominee for the Democratic Party, Joe Biden. Uh, If you watched it, it was a bit, Joe, can we say it was a bit acrimonious? It was uh... off.
1: I've noticed this week, actually, you've been using the term acrimonious a lot. So I just wonder if that's just in your head from from that debate. So I I think that, I don't mean to laugh. Yes, it it
0: was. I've not noticed that. I'll see how many times I can uh, use that in the podcast, right? People will play bingo off that. <laughs> I
1: start, yeah, I might start telling how many times you say acrimonious. But yeah, that's been your word of the week. And I think it's the feeling of the week. So I, I would I would agree. Acrimonious is a great term to use um, for that. Also just um, probably just confusing and, and hurtful for people um, to have experienced, I think.
0: I think those are, are also accurate words. Um, I, I was talking to yesterday, i was I was talking to uh, two of my really good friends. Um, one's a, a staunch conservative, and one is an ardent Democrat. And you know, both of them had this bad taste in their mouth about the whole thing. and i'm not I'm not here to to go into politics. This isn't a political podcast. We're here to talk about what does the church have to say, what uh, what hope is there in the middle of such a divisive time? So Tuesday was the debate. Wednesday, most of us were still in shock. Today it's Thursday. Uh, as we're recording this, we'll put it out, uh, and whenever you listen to it, hopefully, this is something that will give uh, all of you listeners not only a, a picture of where is hope in this, where is uh, where is healing in this, not just for this moment, but also for the future. So, uh, before we do that, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, about Jill here. So, I'm I'm Bill. I'm the pastor. Jill is our director of discipleship, but she also has this like secret identity superpower. Um, <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, so let's use a little uh, Batman Bruce Wayne analogy um, and, and Jill might get that one. Uh, during her daytime, she works at, at Fremont First uh, as our director of discipleship, but in the evenings and, and uh, actually also um, has a part-time job as a teacher, as a professor instructor at Creighton University, teaching a course on uh, restorative justice. Actually, Jill, can you tell us the, the formal title of that class?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, EDU 595, and it's called Restorative Justice Through the Eyes of, of Youth, actually. So um, it's, it was meant to be um, something that we uh, talk about for for youth, but actually restorative justice is something that extends far beyond just youth. Um, it goes, I mean, it's something that can be extended far into our, our adulthood. So um, it's, a, it's something that it can be very healing for all.
0: I like it. That's awesome. Well, restorative justice. We're going to talk about uh, the political debate, but really just political animosity period in light of restorative justice. So Jill, as we dive in, tell us what is restorative justice?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's uh, it's first of all, if I could just give like a quick little background, I'm, I'm so mm-hmm. passionate about restorative justice and I've been thinking about it so often, um, just especially just in this moment in time for us, of course, and we'll I'm sure talk about this a little later, but um, it does feel like this this particular moment in time feels uncertain and it feels divided and it feels kind of wrought with uncertainty and and fear and anger and hurt and just so many emotions um it's just it's a very emotional time um in our world uh not just not just in our country but but in our world and so um and there have been times that we've been here before, but um this that's certainly where we where we feel now. When I have conversations with people, even my own self, I'll, I'll start to feel that, that anxiety of, you know, we are, we are divided. We don't feel, we don't feel like we're brothers and sisters right now, right? We don't feel like we're siblings of Christ, or we don't feel like we're connected with one another. Um, and that's hurtful. That hurts, right? That's, that's a difficult time. So I've been thinking so much about, um, about restorative justice and my work with that. Um, uh, before, before I've been here at the church. Um, I used to to teach uh, high school, and this is approach an approach that I've taken for such a long time. Um, and I have also worked with community centers, and I also consult for just area high schools or you know middle schools, and even just um, beyond local on restorative justice programs. So I've started um, several programs, and I've also um, just helped kind of install programs um, in various parts of, of the United States. Um, so I feel so, like I said, so um, so passionate about it. So yeah, restorative justice uh, to your question, Bill, is if I were to give you the elevator speech and there's so much more to it than this, but the elevator speech is um, that it's a non-punitive approach to human behavior. Um, And it teaches us how to own our own behavior um, and acknowledge that, acknowledge the hurt that we have, um, that we've done to others, if we're the offender, and then um, also just repair the harm that has been done in that situation. So um, meaning like, even in like, a a, if we're talking about a a school situation, perhaps there's like a fight that occurs, you know, and you're the person that, that starts the fight. Um, there's so much more to it than, well, I'm just going to apologize and move on, or you're going to get suspended from school and, and come back and really haven't learned anything. Um, Mm -hmm. so we're going to dig deep and talk about, you know, how, why, you know, let's, let's understand your story for the person who started that fight, because someone doesn't just go to school and decide to start a fight. (laughs) You know, they don't go to school and say, I'm going to I'm going to throw a chair at someone. Right. That doesn't throw a punch or whatever. That doesn't Mm -hmm. doesn't happen. There's a reason for that. So let's dig into that and try to uncover that. And then also help recognize that, yes, you you got into a fight with one person, but that affected a lot of people. It wasn't just Mm -hmm. that one person who did this affect and why. And so we help help people understand that, help the individual understand that and then come up with a plan together. To help repair the harm. So then they feel safe returning to that same space and the victim then also feels safe and doesn't feel like they're going to be targeted or that there's any, any either emotional damage or danger or physical damage or danger to them either. And so um they may not part being friends, but they very certainly know that they can return to the same space and coexist mm-hmm. peacefully with with one another. And that fight example is, of course, in a you know maybe in a school setting, but this extends mm-hmm. far beyond just a school setting. And and for youth, this can also be utilized in in our greater world and in our adult world as well. So that's kind of like the the little speech on what it is.
0: <laughs> I love that part. I, I especially love the part on uh, the collateral damage. You know, you talk about like when you throw a punch at somebody else. Yes, it hurts them. But there's also, I mean, your 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 family is impacted if you get suspended and they've got to come home and take care of you. School's disrupted, so other students are I, I love your your comment on collateral damage because I I feel like so often we look at conflict as it's just me versus them and I won or I lost, it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, to use the analogy that we're using right now or the issue of of the presidential debate, um, it feels like not just our whole our whole nation, but our whole world is is kind of in shock still. I uh, mm-hmm. I saw a post from a buddy of mine. Uh, he's a, well, he, he works for the armed forces. He works for the army. And uh, I met him when he was at the, uh, the officer college at Fort Leavenworth. He, we went to the same gym actually. And he's a super cool guy. Um, you know, he's in harm's way. And I saw as he posted something on social media, and he didn't comment on it, but it just said like, this is, this is the perception from the rest of the world on the debate uh, Tuesday night. And it was just clips of newspaper articles and, and politicians from silver allies in some countries that aren't so friendly to us stating how they now viewed America in light of the debate. And, you know, he didn't say anything, but I, I kind of read between the lines. This is a, a guy who his life is going to be at risk. I mean, he's, he's one of our soldiers, he's serving overseas. Um, and he's going to have to deal with the fallout of whatever happens from this. And so I, I just, I was thinking through that, like, it's so important for us to internalize and realize that uh, restorative justice isn't just so that you can get over your feelings, mm-hmm. but it's for all of us as a as a community. I love
1: it. Oh, so much! It's very much so a communal approach. In fact, that's that's the whole intent: is that a community mm-hmm. is involved, and also, yes, like you said, first uh, you to understand as the offender that mm-hmm. there is. I'll use your term, collateral damage. Other people, mm-hmm. this affects other people than just the two that are sitting in that space, or from your Um, from our example with the presidential debate. I mean, that that debate affected far more than just the president and and former vice president. There were there were a lot of people, many people throughout the Mm -hmm. world, like you said, that are very much so affected. So, um, yeah, that's that's what it's meant Mm -hmm. to do. Absolutely.
0: So. So tell me, I want to know a little more about uh, restorative justice specifically. Uh, Where does it come from? Where uh, what's the history? What are the ideas and the ideologies that have made up this movement? Because it sounds so appealing, but but peel, uh, peel back to history a little bit. Tell us its roots.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So restorative justice is actually something that has been around, I mean, for centuries. In fact, uh, RJ, which is it also is commonly called in this circle, is um, it goes back into is deeply rooted in, in theology. In fact, we'll see in scripture that Jesus, Jesus, in fact, uses a restorative justice approach to to conflict and helping people understand, mm-hmm. helping the offenders understand who they affected um, and and does so in such a, a brilliant way. If we if we think about the, the story um, or the parable where Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, um, mm-hmm. this is actually very much so a restorative approach because we think, oh, well, then we read that just initially and we think, oh, that just means that I just turned my other cheek someone hits strikes me, then I turn my other cheek to let them strike me again. And in fact, what Jesus was saying here was so brilliant, of course, (laughs) um, and was rooted in, in Jewish theology, because there, um, essentially, there were certain days and certain times where if you were following the law, you were not allowed to use one certain hand, the left hand to touch something that was unclean. And so and that means like, someone that was maybe a station beneath you. So like a servant or a slave, perhaps. So when Jesus is talking about that specific um, incident about, well, if they strike you on the cheek, then turn the other cheek. Well, essentially then Jesus was then saying, well, they can't do that because if they do that, then they will have to strike you with their back hand, their left hand. And they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have been able to do that because of of Jewish law and because Mm -hmm. of the law that they were, they were following. And so Jesus said, stand up to them. Don't mm-hmm. allow that kind of treatment, but do so peacefully and do so in a way that we can understand and, and restore and then have that conversation. So for, for that incident or that um, specific incident in, in specific is just, um, it's such a brilliant way. So we think about that, we mm-hmm. see it, that was just an example of RJ in, in scripture, but we also see it in many other customs and many other cultures, restorative justice, healing circles, which we'll talk about later. Um, and And essentially just trying to bring the community together and trying to rally around the offender um, and let them know that yes, you affected us, but we still welcome you back into our circle, right? Think about you know Jesus and his disciples too. I mean, there were a, right at his at his crucifixion, there were a lot of people that made a lot of mistakes, right? Um, mm-hmm. In those moments. And yet when he when he was resurrected and came back, he still very gladly welcomed them back into the circle, but let them know that that was that was hurtful and it affected so many people. Right. Um, and so they knew that, but then also knew they were safe to return. So we see that once again in scripture. Um, we see this in many times in many, many other cultures, I think specifically in the Native American culture, restorative justice has been has been hugely um utilized um especially Mm -hmm. in peace circles so um as far as the united states or not united states excuse me as far as being kind of resurrected in our modern times we uh, we saw a resurgence of restorative justice in the 1970s um specifically Mm -hmm. in new zealand and they um they actually build their um their criminal justice system on restorative justice that's the leading that's the lead in justice and how Um, How people are are incarcerated or how they're how how wrongdoing is handled is um, with a restorative justice coordinator through peace circles, through healing circles, through a lot of different things. Um, And we see that in the 1970s. And actually, funnily enough, if you'll go back and look at crime rates, crime rates in New Zealand are much lower than they are in the United States. Um, And they use restorative justice for their criminal justice system. So just an interesting tidbit there. and then we're just seeing restorative justice kind of make a comeback in the United States, um, and so that's been something that several schools in specific have adopted. But we also see this in communities, um, and there's there's so much that that we've seen um, this kind of crop up in in our in our world right now, I guess, in our nation. So um, so it's very historically based. We see this go back years and years, centuries, of course. But you know, just like. Just like we talk about this this debate, which I do think can be handled restoratively, or a healing can be handled restoratively, you know, history has shown us, Bill, that there's been there has been tons of times, several times, where there's been a a hurt in our right. political system that is extended far beyond just the two maybe political candidates. So this isn't the first time in our history that we've seen something like the the debate on Tuesday night. Um, I, and I, I, I'm not as well versed in that, but I believe you are. Is there any way we can chat about that?
0: Yeah, let's talk about history of violence in politics, history of acrimony in politics. Because um, this is, you're right, this is not a new thing. Uh, this, I saw a lot of people lamenting, like this was the worst thing we've ever seen. This was a new low in US politics um you know we saw a lot of things like that and I I understand the hyperbole this was the worst thing I've ever seen in in my life uh at least on the presidential stage
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um but I want to talk about the history here and the reason I want to talk about the history here is I think one of the things the church does better than just about anybody else is offer a long historical memory which allows a powerful hope um you know the, the church in America predates America uh, by it's one of the only institutions that, that predates the United States government that's still in um, in existence. You basically got the church and Native American tribes and um, like the Freemasons are pretty much it, right? Um, but the church predates America, and, and so uh, as a church, we've been able to look at what is the history, what is the memory, and allow people to see like, yes, this is wrong, but it doesn't necessarily condemn us to the end. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to talk about that. Um, you know, when we talk about is this the worst thing to happen in a presidential debate? Well, no. I mean, if you stop and think about it for a sec, pretty much everybody nowadays uh, is going to think of at least one situation that uh, that would say that that we would say is worse, uh, and that's thanks to the incredible work of Lin Manuel Miranda. I feel like that needs to be brought up every single podcast uh, in Hamilton. Um, if, if you want to think back to the uh, the election where Thomas Jefferson. Uh, finally wins the presidency. He's running against Aaron Burr. Uh, there, there really wasn't quite the same debate issue, but there was campaigning back and forth for prominent um, intellectuals and their endorsements. And, and there really wasn't much open campaigning. Burr did kind of start openly campaigning, and that was uh, seen as as uncouth. But but really, the big stage then it wasn't a debate. It was who do the big wigs back and uh, when. When Alexander Hamilton backs Thomas Jefferson, who he's a disagreed with on every front at, to this point, instead of Aaron Burr calling Burr, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, something to the effect of, of a dangerous demagogue, um, it, it starts the pathway of these two guys who are, are both war heroes together to Burr challenging Hamilton and uh, they, they end up in a duel and Hamilton dies. Um, so if you want to talk about, is this the worst thing that we've ever seen come out of a political election? As of yet, I have not seen a dual challenge. I don't know if I want to. Don't (laughs) give anyone any
1: ideas, Bill.
0: Right. Maybe I should clarify, like, let's not take this as (laughs) president. But I, I think it's important to note that, like, we have since the beginning overcome as a nation and as a world, we have overcome terrible political anger. And that's been part of our thing. It's not just that. Like, that's the big famous one. But uh, 1798, so shortly after the U.S. becomes the U.S., uh, you've got this moment uh, in in uh, Congress when uh, a congressman named Griswold attacks a congressman named Lyon. Um, Griswold uses the hickory walking stick that he was using to support him in the chamber. And he basically just starts beating the snot out of Lyon. They're arguing over things. Uh, Griswold's from... Uh, I think he's from Connecticut. Uh, Lion is from Vermont, and and he just Griswold is just smashing this hickory stick, this club, over Lion's head. Lion is able to hold him off long enough that he can go to the fireplace, grab uh, the metal tongs, and then return the favor. And so you have these two guys basically fighting in the Hall of Congress. Um, they get broken apart for a few minutes, and then it starts back up again. I mean, so so this is seventeen ninety eight right? Like this is the very beginning. Um, it's to the point where uh, Thomas Jefferson puts into the rules of the Senate uh, twenty rules, ten of which deal with proper behavior, um, and are intended to stop fights from happening. so direct quote uh, heres uh, here's Jefferson's rules uh, for for parliamentary behavior and in, in, uh, the manual for parliamentary <coughs> behavior in practice. Direct quote, "No one is to disturb another in his speech by hissing, coughing, spitting speaking or whispering to another, nor to stand up there interrupt him, nor to pass between the speaker and the speaking member, nor to go across the Senate chamber or to walk up or down it or take books or papers from the clerk's table or right there. I mean, there was all these rules designed like, let's not give anybody any provocation to fight because it's gonna happen, right? So, so you've got Griswold and Lyon, that's not even the most famous time that somebody got beaten with a stick in the Senate chamber, 1856, it happens again. Uh, Charles Sumner of Massachusetts is arguing that Kansas should enter uh, the Union as a free state and in doing so, he uh, characterizes uh, Stephen Douglas, kind of insults him, but also insults uh, a congressman from South Carolina. The congressman from South Carolina's kinsman uh, is is a, a member of the House of Reps, enters the chamber the next day with another walking stick and begins to beat Charles Sumner in front of uh, the entire Congress. I mean, so this apparently is a theme that goes back, that's 1856, right? And throughout history, you find time and time again, that violence has erupted in uh, different ways. And it's not something that ended too long ago. In uh, 2017, uh, there was a fistfight in the Texas House of Representatives over the question of immigration and customs enforcement. Um, this happens again and again. Now, I want to pause here I'm not saying all this stuff to say, it's okay. Please don't hear that. Please hear the opposite of that.
1: (laughs) Don't do this.
0: (laughs) These are terrible. What I want you to hear for those of you that are scared is that we have overcome this before. What I also want you to hear for those of you that that are thinking this is a, a good idea or that like this is somehow rugged individualism or this is just commitment to your ideas. The Sumner case, the second guy to beat another guy with a cane, that is by most historians seen as a brick on the pathway to the civil war. That that was kind of that was one of those points of no return. Um, and at that point, people began to go from, you know, we we're getting a little dicey here to like, you know, we're probably gonna fight. So so we've seen times that we've overcome this peacefully and times that we haven't. The question is what we do now. Is how do we respond? This this violence, this acrimony, this anger does not have to define does not have to determine the fate uh, of the United States. It doesn't have to define our future, but what we do in response to it does. Sure. And so, Joe, with that, I wanna flip back. That's a long setup, but tell me about restorative justice. In what ways does it feel like, um, in a world brought with division and injustice and hurt, what are the real ways that we can work towards restoration according to restorative justice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, Bill, because really what I hear you saying is we we think it's sort of new that we have this. Um, I hear people call it cancel culture, right? Like mm-hmm. you say one thing that I don't like or, you know, you your ideals are different than mine or we disagree on, you know, insert whatever it is right there. And then we say, well, then we can't be friends or we can't be in the same room and I cancel you. Right. You're just mm-hmm. you're no longer in my life. But what I hear you saying and I agree, and see too, is that it isn't new for us to be in a cancel culture. It's mm-hmm. it's something that's been around for for lo- longer than we'd like to. As pro- probably as long as the world's been around, I would assume, you know. And so, mm-hmm. um, this this zero tolerance policy that we have for one another is is damaging. And then that in turn, it it makes us fear. So what that what the zero tolerance policy or what a cancel culture sends a very explicit message and that message is is that we don't want you and it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if you're in you know in middle school you're in you know sixth grade or if you're an adult it hurts to hear that you know we don't want you and when we're hurt we do we do react. We will react. It's it's just psychology. The psychology of it is, is that it's fight, flight, or freeze. And in those mm-hmm. moments where we feel like we're being attacked, like our, our dignity, and I do want to talk about that too, our dignity is so important here. Dignity is just the inherent value and worth we have as a human being, and we all have it. Mm-hmm. We all have dignity regardless of our actions. When we feel like our dignity is being threatened, then we will fight or we will flee or we will freeze generally the first two is what we look to. And so <laughs> we'll stand up to that. And that's, and then we see a slew of things that come after that. And so that's when a restorative approach or when justice or when healing needs to come. Um, cause we can't just say whatever we want to someone and, and expect or do whatever we want to someone who is attempting to continue down their life journey, right. Is attempting to grow or is attempting to do whatever they're doing. Um, and expect that there's not going to be, you know, repercussions for that. So um, so when essentially when when we do this on our own, when we look to fix the problem, we really we prone we are prone to put ourselves first. We just are. Once again, psychology. Once again, that's who we are as humans. We want to save ourselves first. It's just it's self-saving. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, one of my favorites. Uh, I've talked about her a lot. I'm still I've, <laughs> I'm not relentless in talking about her because she's great. Uh, Dr. Brené Brown has done so much study on this, and she says, when something goes wrong, individuals and teams are rushing into ineffective or unsustainable solutions rather Mm -hmm. than staying with problem identification and solving. When we fix the wrong thing for the wrong reason, the same problems continue to surface, and it's costly, and it's demoralizing. And we see that here. Um, We see that with, we'll see that on Tuesday night. We see that in our world Mm. today. We've seen that many times over. So to take a restorative approach, like what what do we do first? Mm -hmm. And in the restorative world, we call it laying the groundwork. And so laying the groundwork is essentially getting to know somebody as a human being, and meeting their dignity with your dignity, so to speak. So something that we say, on a very small level, and I still think this is actually something we can do in the world today, is learn their names. This isn't just people. These aren't just Republicans. These just aren't Democrats. These just aren't these nameless, faceless, like, mobs of humans that we can just lump into some sort of form of evil. Right? Mm -hmm. They're human beings, you know? So this is Michael, or this is Janet, or this is Tayshaun, or, Mm -hmm. you know, this is whatever. These This is this is important for us to to offer them humanity because when we start seeing them as individuals and as, as humans that changes and we need to be intentional about that um the other thing with in restoration is that when we're taking a restorative approach is that we have to be we have to be willing to be humble and we have to be willing to be vulnerable so when we're learning someone else's story when we're learning um trying to to heal in in some way shape or form we have to understand that we're not always right in those situations and that we can learn from somebody else and their experience. And when we're able to open that up, if we're in that kind of mindset where we can open it up and learn from somebody else and and really listen to their experience as well, we'll get so much further. And that also means you have to be courageous enough to be vulnerable and share your story, you know, and say, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. And then, and here's, here's my experience as well, you know, I just I think on the, at the very root of these things that we can listen because people start to heal the moment that they feel heard. Mm-hmm. And in these moments, we'll see that so many people just don't feel heard and they don't feel understood. And, and they think that they want action and they think they want mm-hmm. a strong action against the injustice and the hurt that they have. But truly, they at the core of it all, we want to be understood. So um and we want to we don't. We don't want to hear that our actions or our choices are unacceptable, you know. But mm-hmm. sometimes they are. But unfortunately, through that, sometimes what we hear is that you are a bad person. You're an unacceptable human, and that's mm-hmm. not true. Maybe the action is unacceptable, but you're not an unacceptable human. Um, and in the restorative world, we call that reintegrative shaming. Is helping them understand that is saying yes, you're. Action was bad. That's true. You messed up. You done
0: goofed. How
1: <laughs> How I, I love that.
0: Because, I, I mean, that's a fancy tower. You said reintegrated shaming. Was that it?
1: Reintegrative shaming
0: is what it's Shaming. Because, oh, like, from a, from a pastoral perspective, like, that's just, that's the basics of the gospel.
1: Yep. Like,
0: you <laughs> messed up, but you're still loved.
1: Yep.
0: It's like like Jesus hasn't walked away from you just because you did a bad thing. Um, I, that's a fancy title. I'm going to use that. I like that.
1: Yes, um, it's very fancy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I like it. So, so you hit on here on, uh, like the opposite of my love language doing this, you're going to have to be vulnerable. It's going to be Like it, that just sounds so hard, right? Yeah. Um, so it sounds like, and I'm leading the question here, but it sounds like restorative justice is not a thing for wimps, right? Is that fair?
1: Oh, my gosh, I always tell my students, we have this conversation, because I'll say there's naysayers to restorative justice all the time, because what they hear is, well, this is a soft approach. And this is, <laughs> well, you're just going to talk about your feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the situation is, is that this is not for the faint of heart. And this is the harder work to do. Because in fact, what you have to do is be consistent. You have to mm-hmm. show up when somebody's been hurtful to you. And you have to continue to, to be there. For them, you have to continue to, to want to learn their story. You have to push your own pride down and mm-hmm. push that down to the bottom and say, okay, I'm going to put someone before myself. And that is not a normal human reaction because like I said, we want to self-preserve. So mm-hmm. this is, this work is incredibly difficult and it's incredibly difficult because there's so many steps to do it, right? You have to lay that groundwork. You have to be consistent. You have to be an advocate. You have to, you know, you have to push your pride down and all these types of things, right? And, and realize that, you know, there are moments where you're just going to have to swallow, swallow your pride or you're going to have to, you know, put yourself aside. And that is that's difficult. So like you said, definitely not for wimps. Um, and it's much easier to have a punitive approach. Get them out, throw them out, get them out of my way. I don't want to talk to them anymore. C- click off of them on my social media feed, unfollow them, whatever. Right. You know. Like suspend them, expel them, just get them out of my way. That is so much easier in the moment because then we don't have to deal with it. Unfortunately, in the long run, what we've seen is the immense damage that that does. Because when you cancel somebody else, just because they're out of your immediate view, doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that they're not still out in the world continuing to, to think the way that they think. And no healing or restoration has actually occurred.
0: So I, I love that you tell your your students restorative justice is not for, for whips. I was doing some uh, some research in advance of this podcast um, and I stumbled across the, the stuff that you were saying about uh, this was really big in, in New Zealand in the, like, the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I found that was fascinating and just really kind of drives from your point is that that seems to have arisen out of the, the native uh, New Zealand population, the Maori, uh, which are um, this incredible... Uh, this incredible group of people that are uh, just so powerful and so dignified—they—they um, they make up the crux of the New Zealand national rugby team, the All Blacks, named yeah. after their all-black uniforms, which yeah. is like. If you don't know rugby, that's one of the hardest sports out there. And, yes. and these are like the all blacks are, are arguably like they're the Yankees. Of, of rugby. If you don't, if you don't follow rugby, like these guys are awesome. Um, and, and I don't just, know
1: rugby, but I know that that's a really tough sport. So I mean, I know sports, but I know that you. <laughs> That is the end all be all. I know that you're in a scrum and that you can die. I don't know. I'm just kidding, but it looks really Right.
0: Wrong. Yeah. Like, there's one part where they, they measure the pack weight of the, the entire size of, of like 10 guys smashing together at the same time, and they measure it in tons sometimes. So, like, that tells you how much it's gonna hurt if you fall down.
1: Yikes. Um, yeah.
0: For anybody that has questions about whether or not like restorative justice is a soft approach, I invite you, knowing now that this is like, uh, this is just so integral to Native uh, New Zealand culture look up Haka, H-A-K-A, you know, the, it's the, it's the uh, Maori war dance they do before going to battle. And just know that those are the guys that you're calling whips. Um, and yep. And <laughs> good luck, I
1: guess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, so this is, this is something that I, I love that you're, you're pointing out, like this takes, this takes courage. In mm-hmm. uh, a lot of ways, I would argue historically, it's been the easier thing has been uh, to lock up somebody or to execute them or to throw them in prison forever, to to punish and exile them. I mean, that, that takes fairly little from a state. It's just, it's a lot easier just to say we're done with this person they are wasted that we don't need them anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. But to restore somebody is such a, a powerful thing. I mean, if, if you're willing to do this, it's going to take incredible strength, uh, physical, mental, spiritual strength across the board. Uh, With that, uh, talk us through that. How can we honor and respect one another while we do that? Uh how can we show respect to people not as something that can be cast off, but as something that is worth restoring? Um and in kind, how do we feel honored and respect ourselves when we do this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean really when it comes down to it, I've mentioned it before, but it it's mm-hmm. it comes down to dignity. And um dignity is this it's a birthright and it's mm-hmm. it, it's the intrinsic worth and value that each human being has just for human beings and we we recognize that people have dignity from the very beginning and all cultures do because we mm-hmm. see that in babies Wait, nobody mm-hmm. ever questions whether or not a baby has intrinsic worth and value mm-hmm. you know in That's any good. culture all every single culture looks at their young and says this is our future they have value they're very worth it right we see that mm-hmm. It's as we grow that we we forget about that dignity. We forget about that intrinsic value because that's when experience comes and and hurt comes. And so, oftentimes people get dignity and, and respect confused. You know, re- respect is different because respect is often earned by the way that we we treat people or for maybe things that we've accomplished. You know, respect is about our unique qualities and our accomplishments and has to be, like I said, earned. Now dignity is different because it's just inherent and and we want to feel that being recognized so we must we've got to feel the value of another human and treat them as if they matter and that they're worthy of our time and attention even if we disagree i mean and there are that's that's when it gets really difficult is when we ultimately we disagree because we forget that because we Dignity wounds come in mind, you know, like we see we start attacking them as an as an individual and as a person um, and not necessarily for an action. So we have to separate the action from the person. That's I mean, there are actions that are definitely not OK. We can all agree with that. You know, it's not OK to act in that way. However, once again, that doesn't mean that they're an ultimate bad person. And so that's where it gets. um kind of difficult and those we call those dignity violations so when we suffer wounds of feeling humiliated or diminished in any way um and we have an overactive emotional response and it's Mm -hmm. just and it's psychology it's actually a little it's a lobe in our brain that tells us to to act that way um and so it's it's connected to survival um and actually when i talk about like in our brain it's from our limbic (laughs) system and our limbic Mm -hmm. system in our brain is what disconnects us from harm And so um, it tells us that, you know, we we need to separate ourselves from something that's harming us. So that's the self-preservation and our instincts. So um, so we see that for sure. So, yeah, our two of our um, responses when we see something like this, um, when our dignity is being maybe accosted or attacked in some ways that uh, we will either fight or will separate ourselves. And fight is because we're angry and we're going to be, um, you know, coming up against that and protecting ourselves, um, mm-hmm. or we will distance ourselves and we, we judge people negatively because mm-hmm. we don't want to be associated with maybe an angry person, or we don't want to be associated with all that mess. Cause that makes us feel uncomfortable, um, and even when we see someone that's been humiliated, like we could take the the debates, you know, that was hard to watch on on so many levels. Some because it was it, it was anger-inducing, but some because we were like, ooh, that's just it feels humiliating to watch that, right? It's because we we back away from a person that is seemingly being humiliated because that's just is uncomfortable for us. So we'll we'll back away or we'll take a. Take an approach and say, "Oh, we we condemn them and we judge them," um, and so that's difficult. But but through all that, we just have to understand that about ourselves and about other people is that inherent dignity is there, um, and um, we can learn to start respecting in that in that realm, you know, saying they they are a person because that's when empathy comes in, and empathy is also no joke. It's not for not for suckers, <laughs> it's not for someone that's like, oh, OK, well, that's just what your mom gives you or something when you fell off your bike or whatever. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, there is so much more to empathy than that, you know. Um, and so it's a it's it's a hard practice, especially when it comes to offering empathy to people that you don't agree with. But when we start to see them as a human being with intrinsic value and worth, that's when that's when we can start using empathy.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So that's empathy, but where does forgiveness play into that? Mm. Can, can this go together with, I mean, can you, do you have to choose between justice and forgiveness or is there some other third option?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. Cause we also say forgiveness is like this, like what kind of wimpy thing to do, like forgive them. But if you've ever been and bill, I mean, I think we've all been in situations where someone has harmed us and we mm-hmm. have to, make the choice to forgive. I mean, that is incredibly difficult, especially when we're thinking about dignity violations. Someone has violated you as, as your intrinsic worth and value, man, you're not just going to go, okay, no big deal. See you for mm-hmm. lunch tomorrow. You know, I mean, <laughs> right. Like that mm-hmm. doesn't happen because we also have to remember that our actions are irreversible. We can't take them back. And we tend to look to revenge for that because we think that's going to make us feel better. But in reality, Forgiveness is the only way out. So one of my favorite, I've also mentioned him before, theological thinkers is Jurgen Moltmann. And he says Mm -hmm. to forgive those who have wronged one is an act of highest sovereignty and great inner freedom and forgiving and reconciling. The victims are superior to the perpetrators and free themselves from compulsion to evil deeds. Now, this is so important. And I want to unpack this because there was a, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, when we see this, so essentially in forgiveness, number one, in these moments, we need acknowledgement. If we've been hurt, we want someone to acknowledge it. And some, it's just a human thing we want it, and we want it publicly acknowledged. We've been hurt, acknowledge me, acknowledge that this was not okay, that this happened to me, you know, and then we need safety and nurturing. Then we feel like we want control, you know, those types of things. Right. But we do want that public acknowledgement. Sometimes that acknowledgement comes in the form of an apology, you know, if you're the mm-hmm. victim, someone comes and apologizes to you. The perpetrator comes and says they're sorry, and that helps. You know, it can also come in the form of clearing the air. So maybe either the victim or the perpetrator, they want to clear up some misunderstanding about what's happened. It's generally the victim. So, um, or the, then lastly, there it can be a transference of power. So, and this acknowledgement comes from our own self. Um And that's generally the victim as well. So there was actually a study done by this um, professor named um, Donna Hicks. So Dr. Donna Hicks, she wrote a book called Dignity. I can't recommend it enough. It's super, super wonderful. But she was also brought into this experiment um, and it's an, NP. you can watch it on, it's an NPR special. um, I think, no BBC, excuse me, but it's called Facing the Truth. And so they basically took these victims and perpetrators in a war-like situation and these Mm -hmm. soldiers, um, in Ireland had gone into a, um, an enemy territory and Mm -hmm. they had accidentally, but still did, they killed civilians, Mm -hmm. um, instead of other soldiers. And of course there was lots of hurt that went in with this because they killed the civilians. They were actually put to trial and were incarcerated for many, many, 30 years, in fact. Um, but it seemed that the jail sentencing didn't sufficiently address, The feelings of loss for the victims. And so Mm. they wanted to try a restorative justice movement with this. And actually, it was um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was (laughs) the proprietor of all of this. And so when Donna Donna Hicks heard that, she was like, okay, maybe I'll go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so anyway. He, and what she said was so interesting. She said when the victim, they prepped the victims, they prepped the the perpetrators far in advance. Everybody had a voluntary, it was all voluntary for them to, to participate. But he she said when the victims walked in, more than 30 years had passed, but judging by their emotional reactions, she said that this could have happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, time doesn't necessarily heal and neither does justice alone. There needed to be mm-hmm. some form of, of forgiveness there. And so the perpetrators needed a moment to tell their stories. They talked a lot about the horrible conditions in which they were raised. They talked about, you know, all the dignity wounds they had incurred, right? They weren't seeking forgiveness, but they were just, they were kind of seeking just understanding of where they were coming from, Mm -hmm. you know? And and in those moments for those, there was a woman who faced went face to face with uh, the soldier who had murdered her husband. So she was a widow of this murdered Mm -hmm. man. And she went simply to say, just to face His killer just to look him in the face so that when she walked away she no longer feared or hated him so there was a transference of power instead of this this man who had Mm -hmm. power over her for 30 years I mean dictated her anger and her hate and her fear her everyday emotions right and her how she lived her life for 30 years controlled her when she walked away from that meeting she was able to say You have no power over me anymore. I release this. And so the transference of power, instead of him having the power and being on top, it toppled. I mean, it flip flopped. And now she had the power because he also felt indebted to her for the forgiveness. And so when Mm -hmm. we think about forgiveness being this kind of wimpy way out, in fact, what it is, is a transference of great power. You know, mm-hmm. so the victim then has the power over them, you know, um, or maybe clearing the air. There was this, this sister of, of a Catholic man who is who is a targeted member of the IRA, so the um, soldiers that I mentioned. And she mm-hmm. honestly the, she wanted to hear that the, the British Army officer who killed her brother had made a mistake and shot the mm-hmm. wrong person. And that's what had happened. She just wanted to hear him say it. That's all she wanted. And so. She was like, okay, I, got, I get that now. I understand that and was able to, to walk away. There were some that needed that apology because they just mm-hmm. wanted to hear, I'm sorry. And in that moment, what, we, what they saw was healing instead of like, okay, well, the justice system had done their piece. They'd been in jail, incarcerated for 30 years in deplorable conditions. And yet, just like Dr. Hicks said, when those victims walked in, it may have well happened yesterday. But when they walked out of the room after the restorative approach, after the acknowledgement after the forgiveness, hmm. they were able to then take their power back in their own lives. And so the chains, I mean, literally these chains that have just entrenched hmm. them for their lives have been broken.
0: That's so good. I, I love that, that example, that analogy. And I, I think it's so, it's so needed for right now because it's, it's so easy nowadays just to, to destroy someone. I mean, you can do it through cancel culture and just all you have to do is find one tweet that somebody put out there that, uh, that it's wrong. And, and suddenly that person is done in the eyes of the public. Uh, but also I think about, you know, it's easy to use violence if you have the power to tamp down the other side. I mean, once you, once you have the power, violence is the easy way out. Mm-hmm. Actually taking the time to look your opponent in the face <laughs> is, is the hard part. Um, and, and I think that's so powerful. I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. Um, So, so you've given us a ton to think through and I love all of this. Walk me through what does restorative justice look like for, for you and me, for average people? What would it have to say for us in the wake of the debate Tuesday, in the wake of the impending election uh, coming up in November, transfer power, all of these things? What does restorative justice have to offer like tangibly in that situation?
1: Yeah, I think ultimately what what you want to look at is if you're reacting to the debate in a certain way, like some, if you're angry or you're hurt, which many of mm-hmm. us are, right? I would dig deep and and understand why. Why am I reacting to to this in this way? If for for example, there was a, a moment where they were talking about um, President Trump and and um, former Vice President Joe Biden were talking about um, drug addiction because mm-hmm. Joe Biden's son had a Mm. drug addiction and has been going through rehabilitation and and so that had been kind of brought and put on the table and there i saw many responses to that of uh, on all sides of the coin you know yes i i've been addicted to drugs and went through rehabilitation so that was hard for me to hear or you know that's a a horrible thing and why aren't we cracking down more that i've seen so much of that so my for example dig into that why are you reacting in that way because there is a dignity wound that you're that is being Resurface that is being dug up, that's being pressed into because of that. And that's just one example from that, that moment. So why am I reacting in that way and, and really addressing that for yourself? And then when you uh, hold,
0: hold up, hold up real quick, can I hop in on that? Cause yeah. I, yeah. I wanted to add credence, you know, earlier you talked about, uh, the, the collateral damage. Um, yeah. if I could just be, if I could just be vulnerable for a second, I mean, that was, that was pretty hard for Melissa and I, uh, my wife and I watched this on Tuesday night, uh, on the TV. And, um, and, and Joe, you know this, but Wednesday, the day after that was the one year anniversary of, um, Melissa's brother's death Mm -hmm. and he died. Um, and, and this was a guy that struggled with addiction for, um, for a good part of his life. And I remember, you know, out of all of the stuff that we watched in the debate, the debate was, was horrible and it was embarrassing, but out of all of the stuff like that, that moment right there was the part that just made me like angry. Like that, that is not an okay way to treat the dignity of a human life uh, that struggles with addiction. It, it's not something to be thrown around as uh, as politics. So I, I don't know, I, I just wanted to put a human face on that. Like this is, that's where that hit for me. Keep going, I, I love where you're going, I just wanted to throw it back.
1: Yeah, no Bill, I'm, and I, I know that's, it is, it's a, it's a deeply personal issue, right? And so that can, it can be a wound to our intrinsic value and our worth as human beings, whether it's someone that we deeply care about and so we feel that tinge of like, no, I I, <laughs> I struggle with this because, you know, this affects either me personally or someone I care about. And so it, it's a deep wound. And so we'll react, won't we? Just like you, you said, that you and Melissa reacted because we can't help it. Of course we'll react. Um, mm-hmm. And so the common then reaction, though, is to say, OK, I'm hurt. So now I want to go hurt who's hurt me. And oftentimes that target is misplaced. <laughs> so you'll see. Maybe an uproar of people then, you know, battling it out on social media or, or fighting with one another in person in disagreement or whatever that looks like. But really, the real work in that moment is to say, why does this truly bother me? Because there's a reason. So how can I uncover that? That's number one. You know, and instead of letting this this comment, letting that moment, letting that person have power over me, what is it that I need to do to seek to either seek forgiveness or offer forgiveness? To, to break that train, you know, and that's mm. hard. And I'm not saying, okay, so it's Thursday. So go out and do that, you know, just go out and like, you know, figure it out and then go forgive it or seek forgiveness. So there's so, there's so much more. So I think in these moments, it's important for us to, to either find someone that we can talk to either a trusted person, like a pastor, such as yourself, maybe a mental health professional, maybe mm-hmm. it's, um, you know i mean counseling is so so important in those moments maybe it's just you want to explore it a little bit on your own and so there's a a support group like that that you can go and find or maybe you're just gonna journal about it and write it down and kind of get these feelings sorted out for yourself you know something like that but but working through and really getting to the bottom of that is important so um whether that's like i said any of those options are great ones um and it's it's gonna take time and it's hard work but holding around hurt holding on to hurt or or hatred or fear or animosity is so much harder. That weight is, I mean, it will literally crush you. And so this, um, this, like this work is, is so important there. So, so once we, we do that, then what is it that you need do, to do to face it? You know, do you need to have a conversation with a person? Do you need to, what do you need to hear? What do you need acknowledged in that moment? Right? So mm-hmm. is it an apology? Is it you know, clearing the air. Is it transference of power? You know, what is it that we can do? Do I need, you know, what do I need in that moment? And also know that sometimes maybe you won't get it from the person that you think you need it from, but there might be a surrogate person that you can get it from, which is why it's important for us to go and and maybe find a support group or talk to like a pastor or a mental health professional or whatever it looks like, a friend, that kind of thing. There can be a surrogate in those moments to help us get that. Um, and that's that's important to do, you know. And to be able to face that, because oftentimes these this difficulty is, is within ourselves, you know, and then as far as the rest of it, if we look at that and there are still, you know, things that, you know, we see people fighting and we see all of this anger and this hurt and that kind of thing. Remember, I mean, it sounds like it's such a silly thing. Remember their name, say their name out loud. Remember that person is a person and they have value and they have intrinsic worth and they are so important. They are a child of God. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us. And if we believe that we as Christians believe that human beings are brothers and sisters in Christ. And if I believe that to my core, that means I need to treat all of humanity, each and every single person as my brother or my sister in Christ. And that's mm.
0: powerful. That's good. That's good. So give everybody one takeaway. If, if you watch the debate tonight, or if you're just, you've been watching the election cycle and it's, it's. It's scared you. It's angered you. You're just kind of off because of it. What's the one thing, the first thing that you would have them do, if you could give them just one piece of takeaway, one prescription, what do you got?
1: Cool. I would say be kind to yourself, beloveds, like understand yourself and try to, I think that digging deep into why this is a dignity wound for you is the first thing to do. Why is it hurting you? Why has that triggered you? Deep, like dig deep into that because that's the first place to start is why am I reacting in this way? Why do I want to react that way to other people? Because ultimately people don't want to be angry and hurt and yelling at one another. Do we, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't want to feel that way. And it, it is something that's triggered within you. And my question is, or my, my encouragement is, and my challenge is, is to find out why. So go talk to someone, journal Find, you know, write it down, explore it and figure out why. And then we can move forward from there. But also, please take very good care with yourself, because everybody is fighting this battle. Everybody is, is fighting dignity wounds. Everybody is. And so know that you're not alone in that and that you are very cared for and loved. And it's okay to be vulnerable in these moments, because there are so many people that are ready to meet you and care for you and help you through that journey. And ultimately, we have a God who is there to meet us in that journey and oftentimes works through those people. So um, lean into that.
0: Mm. I love that. That's good. That's good stuff. Well, Joe, we are we are reaching the end of our time. Anything else that you want to add uh on restorative justice or on the current state of things or how people can find a little bit of, of reconciliation and healing? Anything you want to add to this conversation before?
1: Just know that I am, we are all in this together and I continue to pray for, for each and every one of us and, and to find restoration through the courageous, for, through courageous, just forgiveness and vulnerability and, and all those things. Um, and know that um, the, what we've been doing hasn't been working, has it? We've been in a cycle that hasn't been working. So um, in order to, to find that redemption that we're working toward, especially as, as Christians know that we are in this together and so, so very loved. So don't forget
0: that. I love that. I love that. I um, I think this has been really helpful for me, Jill. I hope it's been helpful for everybody listening. Um, for those of you who have been listening in, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I've been with uh, Jill Livingston Harmon, who is an instructor at uh, Creighton University in restorative justice. And this has been a little conversation about how do we find hope and healing and restoration in the middle of a really divisive, Political time. Wow. Uh, I hope that uh, that you are well and that you are safe in the middle of this crazy year, friends. We're praying for you, Joe. I'm going to let you have the last word.
1: Joe, <laughs> well, thank you so much, <laughs> Bill. Like I said, it's it has it's been a pleasure to have this conversation. It's always helpful to to talk through this, no matter what where we are in our journeys. And um, I appreciate you taking the time, listeners. We appreciate you taking the time. Know that we are loving you and praying for you, and um, you very much so have. Have a host of brothers and sisters encircling you. So um, just take care. All
0: right, my friends. Take care and go in peace.
1: Go in peace.